Hello, my name is Kamala Shamsi and my new novel is called Best of Friends. In 2017, I spoke with Kamala Shamsi about her novel, Home Fire. Kamala Shamsi has a new novel out called Best of Friends that follows two teenage girls as they come of age in Karachi, Pakistan in the 1980s and continues with them into their 40s as they navigate their careers and families as well as their evolving friendship. I spoke with Kamala Shamsi from her home in London and if you listen carefully you'll be able to hear the hustle and bustle of the streets of London. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia and here's our conversation. I am so pleased to welcome Kamala Shamsi back to Marginalia. We spoke about Home Fire in 2017, and now your new book, Best of Friends, was just released. I believe it was simultaneously released in the UK and in the United States on September 27th. So can you give our listeners a brief description of the book? Sure. I'd wanted for a long time to write a novel of, of childhood friendship, and it started years ago when, when my sister said to me, you know, the friends we make as adults are our friends because we have something in common, but our childhood friends are our friends because they've always been our friends. And I wrote this novel, which is about two girls, later women, Mariam and Zahra. We first meet them when they're 14 years old in Karachi in 1988. They're already 10 years into their friendship. They were friends before they had character or values or knew anything about the world. So they don't know why they're friends, but they are. And they love each other. They're very loyal to each other. At 14, it's that first moment where secrets start to enter the relationship because there's adolescence, there's sexuality, they're the boys you're looking at, the ones who are looking at you, um, and maybe some shame and secrecy around all that. It's also a moment of huge change in Pakistan where dictatorship has ended and this young 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, has come to power. And it gives them a sense that anything is possible for a girl and power is possible. And they kind of discover that you're still a girl in a girl's body and there's a fragility to that. And then the novel moves forward 30 years and we meet them again in London. They're in their mid forties. They're both very successful women, very powerful women, but in very different spheres. And the differences between them are now quite acute and marked. They're still the best of friends, but there's a way in which their relationship to power themselves, their friendship and the world is quite different. And there's an, an event that occurs where all those secrets from 30 years ago reoccur, uh, but now in the lives of powerful women with the ability to act and influence actions and the consequences of how they both treat the re-emergence of this 30-year-old threat has profound consequences for their friendships. You know, I had so many questions prepared, and now I think I'm going to abandon all of them because of the way that you introduced the book. Because, you know, I had heard you refer to the different classifications of friendship in other interviews, you know, the, the childhood friendships that you just, you know, you wonder, do they continue just because they've always been there and then versus the friendships that you do make as adult, because those are the friends who you choose. I mean, I'm still friends with, you know, my best friend I met in kindergarten, but would we be friends? Would I choose her as a friend today? And I was struck by the idea about the suggestion of subtext, because in the novel, I was trying to figure out if it was just the suggestion from the narrator that perhaps this is the key to longevity of childhood friendships, all of those shared subtexts that no one else could discern. 
And, you know, also a little bit later, the problem with childhood friendship was that you could sometimes fail to see the adult in front of you because you had such a fixed idea of the teenager she once was. And other times you were unable to see the teenager still alive, alive and kicking within the adult. So talk to me a little bit about the idea of friendships surviving because of subtext. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to start with actually what you said, which is a thought I think many of us have about our childhood friends, which is, you know, if I met you today for the first time, maybe we wouldn't be friends, maybe we wouldn't choose each other. And I think what we sometimes fail to recognize, the really crucial thing about our earliest childhood friends is they are, in fact, the first people we choose. You don't choose family. You don't choose siblings. The first people you choose, the first people you decide to build relationships with are your childhood friends. So that is that first moment of love and choice, actually. And in some way, all the relationships we choose later come from that. So it's a really you know, significant kind of thing. But of course, the, the subtexts within childhood friendships are very strong because you've known each other forever. And so there's so much that is assumed. And sometimes with your childhood friends, you'll remember that when you were 12 or 14 or 16, you used to have these very, very long, intense conversations. And now you will still occasionally do that, but but it's less common. And in some ways, because you now know each other so well, you've said all that stuff. Um, and there's such a pool of subtext operating. I mean, there's there's one moment in in the novel when the two of them are grown up. And when they were 14, this question of, desire and who do you desire what do you desire whom are you desired by what will you do about it is stuff that they're quite awkward and secretive about and by the time they're in their 40s they know everything well not everything but they know a lot about each other and the shapes of their desire and there's this moment where it's sort of you know one sort of just mentions something oh well this guy you know he's that kind of guy and one of them looks at the other and says oh another one of those and, and that it's all in subtext. They know exactly what they mean, but also the things that might have caused ruptures and friction between them. There's also an acceptance of, you know, at a certain point in your life where you look at your childhood friend, you say, I know your faults, you know mine. I know all your attempted reinventions. I know which part of you is a kind of public performance and which part of you is, is deeply felt. And I choose to love you through all of this. You aren't really a friend to someone until you know their biggest feelings and you decide to be their friend through that. You dropped us in on their lives when they're 14 and Mariam spends her summers away and she comes back and they both have changed a little bit. One's a little bit curvier, one's a little bit taller. And this does seem like a a pivotal moment in their lives when, as you mentioned, secrets start to appear. And what struck me was this one event that happens that kind of changes their trajectory And we do see it from varying perspectives. When we hear Sahar's thoughts, she is mainly concerned with herself. And what struck me was when Mariam realizes that Zahar is crying and scared, she shifts immediately. She goes from anger to protection. So talk to me about this age. Is this when we come of age? I think it's a a significant age because... One, I mean, that, that event, we're not going to go into it too much, but there's an, there's an expression Mariam uses about a thing that happens in it, which is girl fear, which is this, this sort of fear deep inside you, which you don't know when it started or how it started. But by the time you're 14, you know that because you live in a female body, you are vulnerable. 
that your body is a potential site of violence and violation. And if, like the two girls, you're at this moment where actually, and of course it does happen to girls of all ages, some horribly young, but at 14, you start to feel the force of male attention on you in a particular way. And it's, it's, it's a curious thing because there's also a sense of power that certainly Mariam feels of being noticed in a particular way and having a certain sort of effect on people. But you're also aware of this vulnerability. And when I, when I talk to my female friends about this scene, I say, you know that moment where you are with a guy who you don't know or you know very slightly, and sometimes actually with someone you thought you knew, and it's exciting and fun and full of possibility. And then something very slight happens and a switch in your brain goes and suddenly it's terrifying and every woman I've spoken to have said oh yeah I know that one and you're nodding right now as I speak to you right yes. that's the girl being activated and and in that particular scene I wanted it to happen for them differently that that for Zara quite early on there's both that excitement which Mariam doesn't have in the same way and then there's the terror and for Mariam she's sort of just a little irritated by the whole thing wants to get away, but isn't worried, and then sees that her friend is terrified and moves right into protective mode, uh, which, and, and that's very important. The way that plays out is very important to their friendship, not even, not just in the moment, but who they'll be and how they'll respond 30 years later when the memory of all this comes back. Yeah, I had written that down. I was struck by the term girl fear. And so it's, it's interesting how so many women understand that immediately. And I wonder mm. if, if male readers of your book will even have an inkling of, of that feeling. When you, you dropped us into this location in, in Karachi, Pakistan in 1988, and there were so many pop culture references from the 80s. And I think that these references will appeal to readers of a certain age, which is, you know, my age, because, you know, I grew up with these John Hughes movies and, and with all the music they were listening to, and they were part of my teenage landscape. And I know that you were close to Zara and Miriam's ages when President Zia was killed. So it's, it's easy to assume that on the reader's behalf that this is somewhat autobiographical, but it's a novel, right? I mean, mm. were, these, were these pop culture references from your teenage years too, or is this the result of, you know, research for the book? So it isn't autobiographical in terms of the events of their lives or their characters. I mean, they're probably equal bits of me in both of them, but the larger bit of both of them is, you know, just them. But the world they're in was very much my world. So it's as though I took the a sort of memoir element to create the context. But then within that context, I created two people who didn't exist until I created them. And so it gave me a lot of pleasure to write this novel. And part of that pleasure was actually returning to my adolescent self and the music and the movies that was so important. And so, you know, they love George Michael because I love George Michael. And they listened to Tracy Chapman and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and the Pet Shop Boys because that's what I was listening to. And it's funny, someone said to me, you know, how, to write the book, how did you how did you go back to that space in your head to remember what it was like? And I said, the thing is, you can be however old, but if you listen to the music you loved when you were 14, you go right back to being 14. That is absolutely true. One of the subjects you tackle in the book is responsibility of social media companies. Um, you know, the algorithms they use, trial by social media. 
you know, give a person a smartphone with a camera and public opinion can be easily swayed. Can you talk to me about the decision to take on that theme, that subject? So one of the things I was interested with the novel was to think about the ways sometimes unexpected in which they'll find continuity between their their childhood selves in Karachi and these adult versions of themselves in London and the world they're living in. And one of them is, is you know, Zara grows up to be a, a civil liberties campaigner and she's very concerned about surveillance and things like facial recognition. And one of the reasons she that touches her so deeply is because she grew up as a child in a dictatorship where you had a concern about surveillance and, and you know, when you could be seen and who was looking at you. And Mariam, who is a venture capitalist who is investing in tech, has a very different view of things. And she'll say, you know, well, I have, you know, one of her biggest products is, is this company called Image, which is a photo-based social media company, which is best known for its exceptionally refined facial recognition feature. You know, and, and I want to, in part, look at the way through them, you know, these, that it's so revealing about the two of them, how differently they think about these things. That, that you know, Zara is sort of taken back to her childhood of, of sort of fear and terror and, you know, concern about what it'll mean for people's lives. And Mariam is sort of sitting there saying, well, people can opt out. There's an opt out feature. They don't want to take it. You know, people, it's not surveillance, it's visibility. And what I also, you know, in the course of the novel, it's how they're changing as they go from being 14 to being 45, but also the world is changed and not. And what it is to to live in the world in the 21st century and how you're thinking about it and what that means if you and your best friend are thinking very differently and that it becomes actually part of your jobs to think very differently about these things. A lot of the way they live and react to this is how they how their childhoods were informed by their families, right? I mean, Zara's, her parents were, you know, in education and journalism and Mariam had a, a completely different upbringing. And a lot of it was, you know, she was influenced by her grandfather. Can you talk to me about the, the different ways that they were influenced by their families? One of the things I was really interested in is how they're going to grow up to be women who respond differently to power. Um, so I wanted to give both them power, but in different ways. And when they're very young, um, Zara's family, you know, they... Our friend, their friends are journalists and human rights activists and lawyers, and, and they're living in a Pakistan where there's nothing by way of civil liberties, and they know people who are being imprisoned or suffering in all kinds of ways because, you know, they want freedom of the press and things like that. And, and there is a moment in the novel where Zara's father is threatened himself by the military dictatorship. They want him to say a certain thing about the president. And it goes absolutely against everything he believes to say it. But if he doesn't say it, they know there could be very deep consequences. Whereas Mariam's family is very much in that world of, you know, that tiny, tiny pool of people in every society, pretty much, who get to live the exception. They are the exception to the rules that everyone else has to live by. They're very rich. They're very powerful. They're very well connected. And there's, you know, there's one bit where Mariam is is driving a car at the age of 14 and she's you know not supposed to and and she's doing something and her grandfather says you know um it, it's shocking that you did this thing you know how will it reflect on the family and then her mother says also it's against the law 
And everyone sort of looks at her like, that's not relevant, you know? Yeah. And so she very much grows up in a sense that, that actually, you know, the law is for other people, rules are for other people. We get to make our own universe um, and live in it. And that the important thing is to actually create a world for yourself and the people around you where you can be protected, where you can protect the ones you love. And she, there's a, there's a side of her that is very cynical and wounded in a way because she doesn't believe the world can be changed for the better. She thinks the most you can do is protect your own interests and everyone around you. Whereas Zara genuinely thinks the world can be changed and should be changed. I want to ask about the way the book was divided. Some of the sections were, were labeled like summer and spring and summer again and, and winter. And I guess my question is, am I looking for hidden meaning or is there something there with the way that these are identified? I don't know that you're looking for, for hidden meaning, but, but I think there is, I want to get a sense of both change and renewal in the way that also comes up in their lives. So they're, they're, they change, the friendship changes, and yet there's certain things that, that are renewed and you keep returning to. So you will return to summer, but it won't be the same summer. You return to winter, but it won't be the same winter. And actually, winter in Karachi is a different thing to winter in London. But, but that cyclical sense and that, that sense of, of movement, but also return, I thought is quite important to the whole idea of childhood friendship, where you are always returning to your younger selves, but you're also moving as people and becoming different. And, and the friendship has to learn how to both accept that space for change, while also understanding that it's at its deepest levels, it is about you know, going through all those seasons and cycles together. Now, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but you divide your time between London and, and Karachi, is that right? No, I used to, but, but London is London is home. I mean, I'll go to, you know, well, Karachi is the home of my childhood and London is the home I've chosen. So my parents and sisters still live in Karachi and I still visit, but I'm, I'm in London most of the time. Okay, so are you, are you in London now? I'm in London now looking out at the gray London sky and the rain is falling. Okay. We hear, I think we hear traffic and maybe a dog. So I thought maybe I could place you in, in context for our listeners as well. You know, you wrote an article for LitHub about your writing space. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can share a little bit of that story with us about how it has shifted over the last 20 years. When I started to write, I was very much a nocturnal writer. And, you know, the writing day would start for me maybe 10 o'clock at night, maybe even later, and would go on to two or three in the morning. And what I loved about that time of night was that feeling of stillness. And you could believe you were the only person awake in the world. There was just you and your imagination. And if you looked out the window, you know, you just see darkness and you could fill it, you know, with whatever you were imagining. And there's still something about that moment of the day that I love that sense of stillness and quiet. But it made me terrible for most of the day because you, know, you wake up late, you stagger around, you feel kind of like a bit of a zombie and around five or six in the evening, maybe you start to feel like a normal person. Um, and then maybe you can go and meet your friends, but at the back of your mind, you know, I have to get back to work. And then when I was working on my fourth novel, I was very lucky. I got invited out of the blue to go and spend a few weeks at a writing retreat in Italy uh, called Santa Maddalena. And I went there and I discovered that that quality of stillness and silence was actually in that space. 
at any moment. I had this beautiful uh, studio with a wall that was made up entirely of glass. It was just windows looking out onto the Tuscan Valley and there were these, you know, lovely sweep of blue sky and, and lush vegetation and birds swooping around. And I, I remember first day I sat down at my desk and I just felt that stillness and I thought, oh, it's not about a time of day. You know, you can find it in certain spaces, you just need the quiet. And then as the years have gone on, I've, I've come to the understanding that actually it's an internal space, the sort of stillness and quiet, and you have to learn how to access it. And now that I've been doing this a while, I can be sitting at my desk in London with, you know, the red double-decker buses outside advertising the latest Marvel film, but I can still find that internal space of, of quiet and stillness. So now I can write, you know, um, in the morning, sitting at my desk in London, and I can switch off the writing brain at 5 p.m. and go out into the day, and, and that does make life much easier. Well, the book is Best of Friends. Kamala Shamsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Beth. That was Kamala Shamsi, author of the book, Best of Friends, which was published by Riverhead Books. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.